chapter 5. I'll start with verse 8, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning with verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold... What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It's uh, always a temptation to begin with your present situation and look back into uh, the scripture and find application. But the, this uh, verse 8 and 9 jumped out at me uh, immediately as I thought about our current situation in our government, but not to start thinking about the, the reason the Bible seems so relevant and true because it's the Word of God. It describes the circumstances of life under the sun in every generation from the time there was a sun until the end of time 
when there's a new heavens and a new earth and all these present things melt away. Um, we hope and long for the return of Christ. We hope and long for the transformation of the world by the gospel of grace as it's preached and proclaimed. And we will see times of advancement and revival and we will see times of decline but there are certain things that happen in life in every place in every situation that the, the way that to read and apply this is, uh, is simply as an observation of fa a fact this is this is the way it is in verse verse 8 and uh, verse 9 I just describe situations in life that, that exist. If you, if you look in a province, he's thinking of Israel at the time, you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Don't be amazed. Don't be surprised at that situation. Why? Because one high official is watched by the higher and yet higher ones over them. I mean, basically he's describing the bureaucracy of every government that ever existed. And he's also at the same time describing uh, the, the uh, inevitable tendency of bureaucratic governments to be corrupt. And it also speaks to um, uh, the blessing that a province or a kingdom has when it has a king committed to doing things right. Every once in a while in history, we have this, right? Even in my lifetime, I can think of a few times in the history of our country or the state I was living in where you had people committed to doing the right thing regardless of the personal political consequences for them and for others. And that's what he's saying. And the, the tendency of all governments everywhere, whether it's the United States government or whether it's the government in Mexico or it's the government over in the Middle East, the tendency is for one official to look over another official and, and, uh, and, Feather their own nests as they go. If you've ever been in the military, <laughs> you know the military is not a democracy. And that's exactly how it operates. And it's uh, simply a, a, one of his cynical observations of life. Don't be amazed at the corruption you see. Don't. Don't let that govern your disposition. Pray for those leaders. We're, in, we're, we're, we're commanded to pray for those in authority over us. And, and Paul's instructions to Timothy about the ordering of public worship. It's always a, a part of our public worship that we should pray for those who are in authority over us. And I'm always amazed when I think of the context of that, he's talking about the Emperor Nero in Rome, who was one of the most wicked, godless rulers of all time. And yet, uh, he was commanding the churches to 
pray for him. And yet verse 9 tells us about a benevolent leader, a servant leader, a king committed to taking care of his people by making sure the fields of the land are cultivated. Those are the kind of leaders that we, we in a representative government get to uh, try to select and we need to pray for and ask the Lord to send those kind of leaders. The uh, emphasis of uh, the message tonight is uh, really in verses 10 through 12 or 10 through 11. Uh, about the vanity of wealth. He makes a statement uh, that the one who loves money will never be satisfied with wealth. There's not enough wealth to make someone happy. Now, now at first, you say, well, yeah, that's true. If you think about what the Lord inspired Solomon to write when he was younger, when he collected the book of Proverbs, you, you might seem, it might seem at odds if you go through the Proverbs and you look at all the verses on wealth and, and how it is a blessing to, to have wealth and to be a steward of wealth. Uh, this almost seems uh, at odds with that, but it but really isn't. What he's speaking here is the misuse of wealth. Those who love money. You've heard some people often quote, misquote 1 Timothy uh, 6, I think it's verse 10. Um, uh, they misquoted it saying that money is the root of all evil. And that's not what it says. If you look at it closely, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's exactly what verse 10 says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with it. It doesn't say it's a root of all evil. It is a root of all evil. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wicked thing to have that as the title. But it's not the only thing that turns our heart away from the Lord. Um, And the, and the real lesson, and the real application, is it's not about how much you have or how much you've accumulated. Solomon was maybe the wealthiest man in the world at the time he wrote this, given all the all the uh, things that uh, the Lord had allowed him to build and to gather, and he took into account all the all the uh, building and activity and and uh, wealth of the coffers of Israel at the time beyond any other time in the life of Israel it had been extended. And yet, it was that very wealth and the very building of that wealth and how he did it that turned his heart away from the Lord. And what he's saying is it's those earthly things that the world is so eager uh, eagerly seeking and selling its very soul to gather cannot ultimately satisfy us. The only thing that can ultimately satisfy us 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think, I think it was Augustine, I'm sure it was, who said there's a, um, uh, no, it's a, one of the philosophers, one of the, the theologians was a philosopher, Jay, you can probably tell me who it is, who said there's a God-shaped vacuum. Pascal. Pascal. It was Blaise Pascal, thank you. Hmm. A God-shaped vacuum in every human heart that can only be filled by God. Hmm. I think it was Augustine, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There is nothing, no human relationship, no amount of money, no amount of material possessions that can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, except for Jesus Christ. Simply points out the fact, the fact of, of, of the vanity of worldly wealth. In, in uh, verse 11, the more you make, the more you spend. When goods increase, those they increase who eat them. And what advantage is their owner but to see them with his eyes? Um, when I thought when I when I read these verses and thought about this message, I couldn't I couldn't help but thinking about some of the prize fighters. I, mean, I don't I don't follow that anymore. But when I was young, I was, I really liked to follow the prize fighters. You know. Muhammad Ali, and what a fighter. Um, um, and then along came George Foreman, there was another one. And then Mike Tyson, uh, I, I was still kind of following it back then. And what I noticed about all these prize fighters who were so such incredible athletes, and it brought them all this uh, adulation and all of this worldly wealth. And they all had this entourage this huge, the more <laughs> successful they became, the bigger the group of people that followed them around and they paid for, obviously. Security and, and this person to, to uh, shine their shoes. And, <laughs> I mean, they had a person employed for everything. And that's exactly the case for Solomon. <clears throat> the more you, you goods increase, the more who uh, increase who eat them. Um, if the, the utter sadness, and some of you know well what I'm talking about, the utter sadness that uh, so many who achieve great success have with all they possess as they see um, that, well, that very thing that they have been given and they have been seeking and striving for with all of their life result in the absolute disintegration in everything in their family that's worth having. In contrast to the wealthy being full of, um, so full of rich food and, and strong drink they can't sleep, there's the laborer, the common laborer. Solomon observes the simple fact that the common laborer who works hard all day has this blessed gift of sleep. The older I get, the more I appreciate just the fact that you can sleep through the night. It's, it's a blessing. 
It's a gift. God and the, the scripture says God gives his beloved sleep. It's it's a it's a precious thing. It goes on to talk about the vanity of riches. It's a grievous evil, he calls it. Riches kept by their owner to his own hurts. There's so many examples of this in scripture. Where, where do you start? I think, I think of three immediately. I think of um, when the children of Israel were given the promised land. They, they came across um, the Jordan. And they began the, the conquest and they begin to be successful. And then all of a sudden they are brought up short at Ai. And they started looking for the reason. We, we won this incredible battle at Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. We were able to conquer and begin the conquest so quickly. And here we go to the next little place down the road. And it falls apart. What happened? Well, God had commanded them when they conquered the, the uh, inhabitants of the land to, to put them under the ban. Just like he, he told Saul to put the Amalekites under the ban. The same, the same situation there. I thought of that one too, where um, uh, Saul seeks to keep all of the prizes and, and his um, reason is to um, offer sacrifices to the Lord. Well, there was someone named Achan who did the same thing. God had him stoned and burned and stoned again. To underline the point that riches are not what we're to pursue in life. It is a, it was a, it is a fearsome judgment that befalls that man and his family because of his disobedience. Um, riches kept to his own hurt. Also think of um, Saul also think of Ananias and Sapphira in the church in Acts chapter 5 where there was a great movement of the Holy Spirit that was moving everyone to sell their possessions and give it to for the distribution of the poor and to help those who were poor and needy and it became uh, the thing to do and it became a place of adulation and honor to be seen uh, giving this. And so they decided to do it in secret. And God first struck down Ananias for lying about what he had done. And the words were, were, were chilling. That what you were been given by God is yours to do as you choose. You haven't, you haven't lied to uh, uh, people. To get praise and adoration, you blind to God. And immediately judgment fell. And then Sapphira followed immediately in the same judgment. This is the kind of thing that uh, Solomon is writing about here. Riches kept by their owner to, uh, to his own hurts. Sometimes wealth is lost. 
in a in a bad venture. Most, by the way, most of the wealthy, successful people I've known, at some point in their life, have lost everything. Have you ever noticed that? I, uh, I, I know I know people, I know people that are closely associated with this church, and they they uh, had this huge measure of success, and then all of a sudden they lost everything. Uh, some of them remind me of Job. That is Job, right? Job, a righteous man, full of material blessings, uh, a, a godly man, offering sacrifices daily for his children. And then suddenly, by the providence of God, Satan is allowed to take it all away. Um, that, that is, it's a devastating, I, I win, so every time I read through Job, I think of that. And yet, the answer of Job, since it's right here, let's turn there, Job 1, is the answer that we should have. And he said, after after this, all these things happened to him. Uh, at, well, after after his uh, his property and his children are taken away from him, he's tested. Naked I came from my mother's womb; naked shall I return. The Lord gave; the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin. Or charge God. Job was a righteous man. He understood providence. He understood uh, that good comes from the hand of the Lord. And at the same time, uh, evil comes. Not at the hand of the Lord, but by the permissive hand of the Lord. Because God is never in any way the author of evil. But he permits it in our life to bring us to the place that we trust in him. These are the words that we use in the funeral service. You know, when we read the funeral service, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, so these words are so powerful. And they're here as well. They're paraphrased. And many scholars think that uh, Solomon is paraphrasing Job. Because Job is a very ancient book. Um, he just expresses here the bottom line. You're not taking it with you. I used, I had, when I wrote this sermon 25 years ago, the first time, I had in here that there are no U-Haul tra trailers on hearses. And I, I found out this week that is a thing. Our <laughs> own Harrison Howell is the expert on this from Memphis. Apparently so many preachers use that line so many times that somebody in Memphis, Tennessee had their idea to put trailer hitches on hearses, on Cadillac station wagons. 
or on, on the way to the funeral. To illustrate this point, <laughs> uh, so if you live in Memphis, you get you uh, you uh, understand the, re the reference. And the point of this drama of putting a U-Haul trailer on the hearse is that it's an empty trailer. Nothing goes into the grave. My dear brother, friend, mentor, Professor Dominic Aquila is in Egypt right now. And I've had the privilege of going there a couple of times. And uh, once in his stead and seeing the Museum of Egypt, and I understand they're building a modern museum, even more elaborate, but going into even the old dated museum, I was struck by, well, you're struck by the pyramids and the size and enormity of these structures that were the, the years to build for the, for the tombs of the pharaohs, and that's striking. But you go into the museum and you have the, the actual, um, Sarcophaguses that are sarcophagi, is that, is that right? I don't know how to say the Latin, but the many of them. And they are these huge golden boxes. If the Egyptians would just simply melt down the gold and, and, and sell it, they would be the richest nation on earth. It's incredible to see. And then they take you in to see the mummies and they're so proud of their 2,000-year-old mummies that are the most disgusting, nasty-looking things you've ever seen in your life. And you realize the foolishness of building a whole culture on, on uh, carrying your wealth with you into the afterlife. Because most of that wealth is not in the Museum of Egypt. Most of it has long been stolen by grave robbers. And this is what Jesus said, right? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in earth where moth and rust will corrupt, where thieves will break in and steal. The only way to take anything with you to heaven is to put it there now to invest spiritually in eternal things based on the riches of his grace psalm 49 16 and 17 Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not go down after him. And then finally in verses 18 through 20, that's, that's pretty depressing in some ways. But all of a sudden there's this great hopeful note at the end of chapter 5. And that's where I want to leave you with tonight. 
all of a sudden he shifts, his mood shifts. He's not depressed anymore. He says, behold, I have seen it to be good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil with, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. We're to enjoy life. We're not to be full of drudgery and pain and sorrow and sadness. Solomon had an insight into this. Christ has fulfilled this, and this is why he came. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And these verses talk about wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them. That is a blessing from God. And to accept whatever we have as riches. I've been, I've privileged, been privileged to go to a number of places in the world. And, and wonderful places. But what I've discovered in, in having gone, some of you are far beyond me, world traveler types. But tell me if I'm wrong. Whatever the world has is not as good as what we have here, right here in good old Fayetteville, Arkansas, or anywhere else in the United States of America. It's amazing. We've been blessed to live in a land of bounty and plenty. We're to enjoy that, to accept it and rejoice in it. It's a, it's a gift of God. And if our heart is preoccupied with joy, we don't have time to fret over the misery of life. If you're filled with joy and gratitude for all he's given you, you recognize that everything you have is the mercy and the grace of God, then that's transform, that, that'll transform your very being. God has not called us to misery. He has not called us to um, bondage to this world and the things in this world. He's called us to freedom. He's called us to joy. We don't let circumstances, bad circumstances, bad actors in your life, things that have happened to you, rob you of joy. It is that joy that Jesus set before himself to go to the cross. Because he knew in doing so that he was fulfilling the plan that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit had from all eternity to call a people for himself. Rejoice that everything that happens in life is a part of his plan, his gracious plan, and the good gifts that you have are yours from his hand to enjoy. Not in misery, not in guilt, not in despair, but because a gracious God has provided them for you and that you might enjoy life now and forevermore. In fact, we have tokens of that, those gifts before us.
This bread, this wine, they represent common elements uh, given to all mankind. But the most extraordinary thing of all, that Jesus gave his life that you might live forever in his presence. Not just, not just to barely get in there, <laughs> but to feast, to, to join the eternal celebration of his victory over sin and death. Let us pray. Father, if anyone here is yet to fully understand that, we pray for them to have the grace of the Holy Spirit to receive it by faith. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.